Shalom, Avi Ben Mordechai here. Welcome again to Real Israel Talk Radio. And today we are going to continue with our previous analysis. This is podcast episode number 134 and program part 21. I'm analyzing Yeshua's last Passover week timeline of events based on a couple of different calendars that were going on in the first century at the time of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and at the time when all of those narratives are describing those events in the gospel narratives. Now, recapping from my previous program, we had been talking about the calendar schedule and asking the question, what calendar schedule did Yeshua fulfill with his divine purpose of dying for the nation and resurrecting on the third day? If you are so inclined, go back to that previous podcast and you'll get an answer to that question. As I'm continuing here with today's podcast, again, I want to remind all of us, according to Judean Pharisaic festival law, or what is called halakha, in the temple on the 16th day of the first month or the first Chodesh, that was the day when the Pharisees lifted up a barley wave sheaf offering before Yehovah, because they interpreted Leviticus 23.15 to mean that you have to wave the barley wave sheaf offering on the day after the festival Sabbath, the high Sabbath, if you wish, which to them was the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, which again, in the year when Yeshua was crucified, which I believe was year 27, as we would understand time. But that doesn't make me right. It just means, based on my research, that's what it looks like to me, that it was what we would call year 27. So in that year, the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, or the first day of matzah, it happened to fall out on the sixth day of the week, or what we would call Friday. However, for many of the temple Sadducees, their interpretation of Leviticus 23.15, it was different than the way the Pharisees understood things. For the Sadducees and the temple priesthood of that time, they understood Leviticus 23 verse 15 to mean the day after the weekly seventh-day Sabbath, which obviously would be the next day, or what we would call a Sunday. Again, the day after the seventh-day weekly Sabbath is when the Sadducees and the temple priests brought to the temple their barley wave sheaf offerings to Jehovah so that they could then eat of the new crop after presenting their first fruits of the fields. But for the Pharisees, no, they didn't wait until the first day of the week to do that, because their idea 
of Leviticus 23.15 meant the day after the first day of the festival Sabbath, the high Sabbath. So whatever day that fell, they did it. Even if it was a Sabbath, they did it. And in that particular year, they brought their wave sheaf barley offering to Yehovah on a Sabbath, that is, the seventh day Sabbath, which happened to be the 16th of the month or the 16th of Nisan for them, but not for the house of Tzedek. That was a different day and a different calendar event. So this now brings us back to where I left off on the last podcast, and we're talking about event number 26, the early morning third day resurrection of Yeshua. So let's get into it now. Once again, just to set the stage correctly, we need to remember that in Pharisaic and Second Temple times, there were two different festival calendars operationally running side by side. Now, actually, there were more than two calendars, but they are more along the lines of minor calendars because it involved the Greeks and the Romans and other people arguing about dates and times in those days, just like people do today in many Messianic circles. Nothing's changed over 2,000 years. People are arguing about all kinds of things, and they just happened to find a camaraderie in arguing about the calendar back then, even as they do today. But keeping this in mind, these are the two primary calendars that existed in the days of Yeshua in regards to festival calendar time. The Pharisaic and Sadducean traditional cited moon calendar. And that was the calendar that was being followed or observed by the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and for most of the Judean population in the Judean or Jewish world of the time. And according to that calendar, one day always advances to the next beginning with sundown or sunset. Now, the other calendar that the Pharisees were competing with is that of the House of Tzedek priestly calculated sevens solar calendar. And that was defined as one day always advancing to the next day, beginning with sunrise And there were some other nuances of that calendar that the Pharisees just simply didn't follow. Namely, that according to the House of Tzedek, priestly calculated sevens solar calendar, they determined the first day of the new year as the first fourth day of the week after the spring Tekufa, or Equinox, which I've addressed in other podcasts in this series. Okay? So, the first fourth day of the week, what we would call a Wednesday, and that would be the first Wednesday after the spring Tekufa, or the spring Equinox. 
And that's what was setting this whole thing apart from the Pharisaic calendar, which used the sighted moon. And it had absolutely no references or anything connected to the equinoxes or the solstices of any given year. That's just not what they did. So with these two calendars operating side by side, naturally, the timing of the festival events, they were not going to match. They would be different, of course. And this now begs the question where we're going to need an answer. The question, was Yeshua's third-day resurrection timed to happen according to the traditional sighted moon calendar that the Pharisees and Sadducees were observing? Did his resurrection happen according to that calendar? Or did his resurrection on the third day, did it happen according to the house of Tzedok priestly calculated sevens solar calendar? And we're going to take a careful look. So now, let's start with a citation from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, verse 1. And this will be coming from the New King James Version. Now, after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. What's this telling us? Very simply, the women came to the tomb in the early morning hours of what we would refer to as dawn or first light. So the question here should be, on what day of the week did that event happen when they came to the tomb? Was it during the early morning hours of what today's Roman reckoning identifies as Saturday, or Shabbat in Jewish thought, or was the event linked to Sunday, as Roman reckoning would identify it, or the first day of the week, as Judaism would say? Well, certainly it depends on the calendar that one is observing. If one was or is following Pharisaic or Sadducean sighted moon calendar reckoning time, then it can be said that the women came to the tomb at dawn or first light early on the first day of the week, or what is commonly referred to again in Roman reckoning as Sunday. And this is based on Pharisaic law, that one day always advances to the next day, beginning with the previous evening sunset. Now, if one is following the House of Tzedok priestly calculated sevens solar calendar, then we're going to have a different story. It can be then said that the women came to the tomb at dawn or first light while it was still called the seventh day weekly Sabbath, or what is commonly referred to as Shabbat, or Saturday, in Roman reckoning, or Roman terminology. 
And this is because the priests of the house of Zadok, they taught that one day always advances to the next day, beginning with the rising sun of the morning. Now, this brings up a previous point that I have mentioned many, many times in this podcast series. It goes back to the prophecy and the declaration of Yehovah, Yudhe according to Ezekiel chapter 44, verses 23 through 24. There you will see clearly, without any ambiguity as far as I can see, that the house of Tzedok priestly family line, which is a line that is descended down through Aaron, the brother of Moses, that line was and did have the authority over all of the nation of Israel to set all of the calendar dates, all of the Moedim dates, everything involving the festival dates and when they would occur and what would happen on those days. They had the authority. They did. And we are in no position to usurp that authority, not us, not the Pharisees, not the Sadducees or the Tzedekim of the temple period, no one. Yehovah gave the house of Tzedek that authority, and we have to follow that authority. And if we don't follow that authority, we would then be guilty of throwing them out of their job and saying to Yehovah, well, I'm sorry, but that doesn't work for me. We're not going to do it that way. We're going to do it a different way. And that's exactly what the Pharisees did about 175 years, give or take, before Yeshua came on the scene. They performed a political and a religious coup where they destroyed and got rid of all of the house of Tzedek as much as was humanly possible. They took them out of the way. They chased them out. They said, you're no longer in charge. We're in charge. That's what happened. That's historical. And so the Pharisees grew as a party over the next century and a half. And what happened then? The house of Tzedek kind of vanished into the background, but they were the ones that left for us all of their writings that were later found in the clay jars that were found in the caves that is referred to as the Qumran caves or as the documents of the Judean desert. All of those Dead Sea Scrolls writings, they were left to us by the surviving members of the house of Tzedok. Now, some people like to connect them with the people referred to by Josephus as the Essenes. I don't know if we can do that. It's possible. But according to scholars like Rachel Elior at Hebrew University and James C. Vanderkam, who is also a well-known Dead Sea Scrolls expert, 
the idea of the Essenes does not even exist as a word in any of the Dead Sea Scrolls. That word doesn't even exist. So where do they come from? Well, that is something that needs to be discussed by scholarship and is being discussed by scholarship today. But we'll have to save that for another time, okay? So what I'm getting at is that the house of Sadok, those priests, they were run off. They were taken out. They were replaced by Pharisaic authority when they had no authority to do such a thing. And today, we are following and learning from Pharisaic authority based on Judaism that has grown over the last couple of thousand years. So why is that? Because there is a principle that most people are familiar with, and that is that the victors of a conflict write the history. Or put another way, those who win in a historical conflict are going to be the ones that do the historical influencing of all of history down line. They will. So the Pharisees were the ones that won the battles and the conflicts in regards to the house of Sadok priestly families and those people that inhabited the area of the Qumran. The Pharisees won. They were the winners in that conflict. So they're the ones who give us the history going down line. And that's what we're learning and understanding today. But that history has to change because they were not correct. Not only were they not correct, they didn't even have the authority to give us those kinds of rulings, not based on Jehovah's command and word in Ezekiel 44, verses 23 through 24, as well as Ezekiel 44, verses 15 through 17. They are the ones being referenced by the book of Daniel, chapter 7, when he says that this false messiah or the false teachers, that they will make changes in times and in law. The law is religious law, da'at. They will make changes in the times and all of the calculations of religious law. And they did. They made those changes. And that's what we're doing today. But we need to take this into consideration and turn it around. The house of Sadok and the priestly families of which John the Baptist was of the house of Sadok. We know that from Luke chapter 1, because his father, Zechariah, he was of the house of Sadok, and his mother, it says, she was of the house of Aaron, that is, the brother of Moses. They were all house of Sadok. So if they're all the house of Sadok, and Yeshua is a cousin to John the Immerser or John the Baptist, then there's obviously something there, and we need to have a look at that. Okay, so let's get back to what I'm talking about here and some of the issues that are filling the narratives of the resurrection story. Again, let's go back to Matthew 28, 1. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to the tomb. 
based on my understanding of the Second Temple period calendar disputes, I believe that the women came to the gravesite at about first light or dawn, when the day was still referred to as the Sabbath. They came on the Sabbath, not on the first day of the week. Then, with the morning sunrise, there came to be a new day. That is, the new day was the first day of the new week, commonly referred to by Roman reckoning as Sunday. That's what it's called in today's culture, but it's simply the first day of the week. And this makes chronological sense according to the gospel narratives in Koine or Common Greek. And shortly I'll come back here to address that question of the actual Hebrew date of Yeshua's resurrection. Was Yeshua's resurrection on the 16th day of the first month? according to the Pharisaic doctrine and calendar reckoning? Or was Yeshua's resurrection on the 18th of the first month or the first Chodesh based on the priestly calendar reckoning of the house of Tzedok and their teachings? Momentarily, however, I do want to continue looking at the resurrection of Yeshua as it seems to have occurred based on the traditional weekly Sabbath, because that is an important principle. What is noteworthy is that the Catholic and Protestant Church's understanding of Matthew 28.1 is very different from what is actually being said in that narrative. In other words, how is Matthew 28.1 traditionally interpreted and read? Okay, that's a fair question. Typically, Matthew 28.1 is interpreted and read precisely as the New King James Version presents it. Now, after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. This idea routinely paints the image of the resurrection chronology according to Pharisaic sunset-to-sunset reckoning, and not, again, I repeat, not according to the priestly house of Tzedok sunrise to sunrise or sunup to sunup reckoning. Now, why would this be the case? Why not just give us a representation according to the beliefs of the house of Tzedok? Because that would just solve all of the issues. It would certainly make things a lot more simplified theologically. I think the reason why the general understanding of the resurrection of Yeshua is based on a, quote, Sunday paradigm is because the Pharisaic influence that a day is always sunset to sunset. It's that influence that gives us this Sunday, first day of the week, resurrection paradigm. Therefore, by Pharisaic reckoning, the seventh day 
came to an end on what Pharisaic reckoning refers to as Shabbat or Saturday sunset, meaning after sunset, the day advanced by one. And the result was the first day of the new week, which is still the same to this very day. Then it's one in the morning, two in the morning, three in the morning, etc. Okay? So people and cultures from all over the world have understood it this way for a very, very long time. Now, when I come back from our break, I want to continue where we have left off here. And let's continue taking a close look at this whole narrative involving Yeshua's crucifixion and resurrection on the third day. Stay with me. I'll be back. This is Avi Ben Mordechai, and you're listening to Real Israel Talk Radio. Okay, welcome back to Real Israel Talk Radio. I'm Avi Ben Mordechai. Let's continue where we left off just before the break. It is important to note that everything often comes down to communicating in words and ideas that common folk can understand. Let me give you an example. It's much like when I write or speak. You will hear that I will often use the planetary days of the week. You know, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, etc. Well, sometimes that just really irritates people out there. They don't like me saying Sunday, Monday, Tuesday to express time rather than use the more accurate Hebraic numbering system of first, second, third, etc. So why am I saying Sunday, Monday, Tuesday? Why am I using those terms? Well, I do so because I am communicating to a broad audience rather than speaking to a narrow audience that would understand the difference between pagan names and counting by numbers. If I use the pagan names, it's not because I like to use the pagan names. It's because that is the way that I'm going to have to communicate these ideas to people who operate in that paradigm. And I think we all understand that. That's just a fair way of dealing with communication in a very big world, like the world we have today. So this said, let us take a look at what I think is likely being expressed in the first half of Matthew 28.1. So based on the Greek text of Matthew 28.1, this is what I see actually being said. Quote, But now, at a late hour of the Sabbaths, that's plural, she, Miriam, was coming to see the tomb. Notice, it's a late hour of the Sabbaths. Haha, <laughs> this makes perfect sense when compared to the priestly house of Tzedok, sunrise to sunrise reckoning. Said differently, this narrative here in Matthew 28, 1, is telling us that Miriam began approaching the tomb late. I repeat, it was late on the second of two back 
back-to-back Sabbaths. But then the narrative appears to read otherwise. And it goes on to define these two back-to-back Sabbaths according to Pharisaic and Sadducean reckoning. Well, that just uh, looks like it's a bit confusing, but it's not meant to be confusing. It's actually quite significant, not only to Jehovah, but to the writer of the text and also to us. What we have here is a narrative timestamp from two different points of view. From the Pharisaic point of view, the first of the two back-to-back Sabbaths began with the first day of the festival of unleavened bread in the week of Yeshua's crucifixion. Now, Pharisaic reckoning referred to this as the day that followed the fifth day of the week, which they called Preparation Day. In other words, the first day of the festival of unleavened bread fell on day number six in Hebraic thinking. And that day always begins sunset to sunset, according to Pharisaic reckoning or the Pharisaic point of view. But it's also what Roman reckoning identifies as Thursday at sunset to Friday at sunset. So then by the same reckoning, the second of the two back-to-back Sabbaths kicks in after the first day of the Festival of Unleavened Bread comes to an end. Now you've got the next Sabbath, which follows right on its heels. And that began with what could be called Friday sunset. And it ended with what could be called Saturday sunset in our culture. So that is the Pharisaic point of view. Now, from the priestly House of Sadok point of view, the first day of the Festival of Unleavened Bread could and would never, ever fall back to back with a weekly Sabbath. It just would never happen. And so, the sixth day of the week, from sunrise or sunup on Friday, to sunrise or sunup on what we would call Saturday, well, that would have been understood as the Cholamoed Pesach. That is a regular day of the Passover week. But then with the sunrise or sunup of Shabbat or Saturday to the sunrise of what we would call Sunday, well, that would have been understood as the weekly Sabbath. So ultimately, it appears that Matthew 28.1 was written to contain a kind of dual timestamp of Pharisaic and House of Tzedok scheduling, as it is written. But now, at a late hour of the Sabbaths, you see, This seems to be speaking about the arrival time of the women at a late hour while it was still Sabbath, according to the Tzedok 
sunrise-to-sunrise reckoning system. They got there on the Sabbath, not on the first day of the week. Now, let us continue to read the second half of Matthew 28.1, when the women came to the gravesite. Here we learn, quote, the dawning of the morning light was going toward or moving in the influence of the first of the Sabbaths. And mind you, this is a plural term in Greek. Writing the narrative this way strongly mirrors how the Pharisees understood Leviticus 23.15. Sadly, however, an important point of context is lost following our Masoretic Hebrew-to-English interpretation. Now, I made an attempt to put this teaching back into its proper context, and this is what I came up with. And you shall count to yourselves from the morrow of the Sabbath, from the gathering in of your harvest, an omer, seven Sabbaths complete. This is about when to start the counting of the omer, and also when to start the count of the seven Sabbaths leading up to the Festival of Weeks, or the Feast of Weeks, which is called Shavuot, or Pentecost. In the week of Yeshua's crucifixion, the first day of the Festival of Unleavened Bread, or the first day of the Festival of Matzah, that day fell on what is commonly called the sixth day of the week, Friday which was defined by the Pharisees as a 24-hour period from Thursday sunset to Friday sunset. So then what happens? With the close of the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, a small Pharisaic party went out into a local barley field, and there they cut off a ripe sheaf of grain amidst a lot of community fanfare. And if you want to learn more about that, just consult the Babylonian Talmud and go to Tractate Menachot, chapter 10, for a whole look at that fanfare. Again, Menachot, section 10 of the Talmud. Okay? So then what happens after all that fanfare goes on at sunset on a Friday night, if it so happens to be that the 16th falls on a Sabbath. What do they do next? Well, the next morning, which is going to be a Sabbath in the temple, they brought what they had gathered in from that previous evening, which was a sheaf of grain from their harvest cutting, and it was waved before Jehovah, even on the seventh day Sabbath. In other words, The sanctity of the seventh-day Sabbath did not override the waving. The waving took precedence. And during the ceremony, they all said, Today is one day of the Omer. And then they began their count of the next seven Sabbaths, leading up to 
Shavuot, or Pentecost. And I think this is what is evident in the time stamp of Matthew 28.1, when it tells us that the women approached the tomb late, I repeat, late on the second of the two back-to-back Sabbaths, because it also happened to be the dawning or first light of morning light, which was an acknowledgement moving in the direction of acknowledging that they arrived on the first of seven Sabbaths by counting them. And that was what they did. They arrived on the first of the seven Sabbaths because Pharisaic reckoning of Matthew 28, 1 tells us that. It speaks about the first of the seven Sabbaths, starting with day one Sabbath wave sheaf offering of the Omer. So here are the summaries. If you want to follow along with me, it might help you if you find this just a bit confusing. First, there are two Sabbaths back to back in Matthew 28.1. And those two Sabbaths back to back are Pharisaic. The first Sabbath is Thursday sunset to Friday sunset, as we would understand the terminology. That would be the first day of the Festival of Unleavened Bread, or the first day of the Festival of Matzah. That's the first Sabbath. Now, the second Sabbath follows that on its heels. That would be what we would call Friday sunset to Saturday sunset. And all day on that Shabbat, or as we would say Saturday, that was a regular weekly Sabbath. So here you have two Sabbaths back to back. The second or the weekly Sabbath is the first of the seven Sabbaths. That's right. A sheaf of grain measured as an omer was cut on Friday evening, and then it was waved the next day on Shabbat, or Sabbath day, in the temple. And it was on that day, on that Sabbath, when the Pharisees began counting the seven Sabbaths of that festival leading up to Pentecost. That was Sabbath number one. Now, let's compare that with the concept called late on the Sabbaths. And this is from the house of Tzadok. When the women arrived at the tomb, it was likely about 4.30 in the morning, thereabouts, which is about the time when first light or dawn began to shine there on the eastern horizon. When the women arrived, it was still part of the seventh day weekly Sabbath reckoning, because Sabbath reckoning would have been Saturday sunrise to Sunday sunrise, as we would refer to it. So the first day of the wave sheaf of the Omer, according to the house of Tzedok, that always comes at the end of the seven days of unleavened bread, which means it's always going to come on the first day of the week, Sunday, referred to as Aviv 26 or Nisan 26. It will never change. It's always on the 26th day of the first month, 
always. Then, a count of seven days after that brings the house of Tzedok counting to the Sabbath of the second day of the second month, referred to by name as ER, day number two, which was when the count started for the first of the seven Sabbaths, of which then Sabbath number seven concludes with Shavuot, or Pentecost, on the third month and the 15th day of that Chodesh or month, which always falls out on the first day of the week, which is the day after the weekly Sabbath. Therefore, Pentecost always will fall out on the first day of the week or Sunday. That's the way it works in the house of Tzedok. And they were the rightful teachers and authority behind all of the Moedim or the festivals based on Ezekiel 44, 23 through 24. Now, so far, I do hope you're following along with me with all these heaps of numbers that I'm speaking about. Because, yes, I do understand it it can get rather complicated and confusing with throwing all these numbers around. But try to follow with me, because this is really, really important. All this said, let us now return to answer my earlier question. On what Hebrew date did Yeshua's resurrection happen? Was it on the 17th day or the 18th day of the first month? As I've said many times previously, there was a known calendar dispute in the Second Temple period. The dispute was between the Judean Pharisees and the Qumran house of Tzedok priesthood coming in from the line of Aaron. And the house of Tzedok had the authority based on Ezekiel 44, 23 through 24. If we are to judge by the calendar of the Judean Pharisees, then Yeshua's resurrection had to have happened on the 17th of the first month, which for them was the first day of the new week, or what would be called Sunday morning by Roman reckoning. However, if we're to judge by the calendar of the Qumran, the house of Tzedok priesthood, that means Yeshua's resurrection happened on the 18th of the first month, which for them was the seventh day or the Sabbath on what would be called Saturday night by Roman reckoning. So consider the scriptural evidence in the gospel narratives. The following appears to be very evident to me. Point number one, Yeshua's resurrection occurred somewhere in the middle of the second watch of the night, referred to in Roman reckoning as, quote, Saturday night, with my estimate of somewhere between 10 o'clock at night to 2 o'clock at night in the dark of that late Saturday. But on the Pharisaic calendar, Yeshua's resurrection occurred in the morning, early, on the 17th of the first month, or the first Chodesh, that is, Nisan 17. But on the Qumran house of Tzedok calendar, Yeshua's resurrection occurred in the morning, 
late on the 18th of the first Chodesh or first month, or if you will, Nisan 18. That was a Sabbath, and according to the House of Tzedek, that always remains a Sabbath. So now this said, let's go on and take a look at Mark 16.1. Now, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary of James, and Salome brought spices that they might come to anoint him. Here, the reference to the Sabbath is singular, unlike Matthew 28.1, where it is plural, Sabbaths. You see, in many translations of Mark 16.1, you're going to notice that there is an aorist tense in the statement. Now the Sabbath was over, or now the Sabbath was past. That essentially says it was not Sabbath anymore. In Greek linguistics, it is often the Greek grammarian's term for a simple past tense, the idea of the aorist tense. But the aorist is not ever meant to be a one-size-fits-all statement, unlike other past tenses, both imperfect and perfect. The aorist tense simply states a fact of the action, but it doesn't give us any information on how long the action took or even whether the results of the action are actually still in effect. So naturally, the translators will just pick the easiest way to express the idea, and they put it into a past tense. But it's not accurate to do that in every single case. Additionally, here from the Greek of Matthew 16.1, notice the term the Sabbath is what is called genitive. This is a point of Greek linguistics. To understand genitive, it's just a matter of inserting the word of before the noun, the Sabbath. It's kind of a possessive concept. So given these nuances in Greek, I am inclined to understand Mark 16.1 as a snapshot of a passing, elapsing, action in time, but not a completed action, as if to say, oh, the Sabbath came, the Sabbath went, end of story. And I'm no Greek linguistic expert, but I can clearly see that there's definitely something going on there. And Mark 16.1 seems to be telling us, quote, and now was the elapsing of the Sabbath. Mary Magdalene, Mary of James, and Solomon bought spices that they might come and anoint him. This is a Sabbath that is elapsing. It's in a process. It hasn't yet completed, but it's in the midst of it. And this idea beautifully matches the narrative of Matthew 28.1. So then Mark goes on to further declare that it was also early morning on the first of the Sabbaths. And he says so in Mark 16, too. So here in Greek, the reference to, quote, the Sabbaths, it changes to the plural when compared to Mark 16, 1. Why is it changing to the plural? 
because now it is referring to the first of the Sabbaths involving those seven Sabbaths that one counts according to Leviticus 23.15. In other words, Mark is telling us that the women were coming to the tomb while it was still called Sabbath. But not just any Sabbath. Oh, no. It was the first or number one Sabbath of seven, according to the Pharisee interpretation of Leviticus 23.15. However, again, Mark narrates the story from the Pharisaic and Qumran House of Tzedok points of view, and not exclusively from the House of Tzedok priestly point of view. Oh, why so? Again, I think because he wanted to write his account for a very broad audience with their different festival reckonings of time. Each audience would have clearly understood precisely what he was saying, that the women came to the gravesite, according to the house of Sadok, sunrise to sunrise paradigm. But at the same time, they also arrived at the gravesite based on sunset to sunset reckoning. Luke 24, 1 and John 20, verse 1, they each bear a very similar story. They're all saying the same thing, all these passages, because they're switching between singular Sabbath and plural Sabbaths. And on top of that, the narratives are talking about the Tzedok, sunrise to sunrise reckoning system. Thanks for listening to the podcast program today. Be blessed and go in health. I'm Avi Ben Mordechai, and this is Real Israel Talk Radio. Shalom.